John chapter number 20. Looking forward to our time together in the Word. Special Sunday as the text of John lines up with our our Lord's Supper. And uh, we're excited about that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. No doubt the most pivotal event in human history, a world changer, a game changer, so to speak. But again, we have the resurrection of Jesus here in John chapter number 20. And let's open in a word of prayer. And before we do that, I want to just remind us of the danger of the familiarity of of Scripture and the familiarity of a topic um, that wields so much importance in the life of a believer uh, like the resurrection of Jesus. Um, No doubt we will be familiar with the story. No doubt we'll be familiar with the details and the scene and the text itself. But I pray that as we look into the word that the familiarity of the text would not blind us to its life-giving truth in our lives today. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that no matter where you find yourself this morning coming to the gathering of Liberty Hills Bible Church, that the resurrection of Jesus would speak hope into your darkness and that would give you a resurrection of sorts of your own spiritual faith and vitality. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, as Andy even mentioned earlier this morning, uh, just as Christ is alive and well, so is our adversary, Satan, the thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy our adversary, the roaring lion who is walking about seeking whom he may devour, Satan, the great deceiver who is desirous um, to close up our ears and to harden our hearts. Father, I pray that you would not allow that to happen this morning. Our heart is heavy with the responsibility of preaching Christ, Him crucified and risen. I pray that you would do a work that we cannot do this morning. Nothing that we can manufacture, but only a move of your Spirit to awaken our cold hearts. Not only to the reality of a risen Savior, but its implications on our life. As followers, as disciples of this risen Lord, So I pray this morning that Liberty Hills Bible Church, corporately, collectively, together, that we would be moved, that we would be changed as a result of Jesus raising from the dead. We thank you for this truth, for this promise, this hope that we have. That all we struggle, 
that although we, we waver many times, although the struggles of this life are real, that we have the hope of resurrection. So awaken us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter number 20, let's read verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The title of the message this morning is The Witnesses of an Empty Tomb. The Witnesses of an empty tomb. Here we have again in John 20, recorded in John's account, the resurrection of Jesus. What should have been recognized immediately as Christ's final display of his incredible miracle working power took some time and some massaging, if you will, on behalf of Jesus before his disciples would truly understand the events of the resurrection account properly. But once again, before we start casting stones at the disciples, I want us to stop and pause and remember once again the setting, the circumstances, the events that had just previously taken place and have a, a moment of sympathy and empathy for these seemingly thick-headed disciples. Where do they find themselves at this point in their journey? Their life with Christ, their fellowship of Christ as disciples, giving up everything, their life, their career, their families, their reputations in many cases, to simply give up everything in a radical display of servitude to follow Jesus, the Messiah. At this point in the story in the life of the disciples, it is plagued with the spirit of defeatism. All the hope they once had, all the vigor and excitement about following Christ, the glamour, the joy, the excitement, all that seemingly has fallen along the wayside. And they're wondering, potentially in the back of their minds, maybe not verbalized, but maybe in the back of their minds, they're wondering, have they just been shammed by some religious con artist? I mean, was this all just a lie? Was this all just a joke? I mean, here Jesus is, the one who is supposed to establish his earthly rule and kingdom and overthrow the suppressive Roman Empire, is now dead, crucified, and placed in a tomb. 
What did they miss? What went wrong? Where did they not connect the dots? It all seemed to add up in their minds. But now, again, Jesus has been publicly humiliated. He's been shamed. He's been mocked. He's been labeled a common criminal by during this crucifixion death. And the disciples simply are looking for one thing, a path forward. Right? They're looking to, how can they gather up the pieces of this shattered life that they thought they were going to have? And how can they find a path forward? They're in damage control mode, right? They have nothing. No families. Society as a whole will more than likely label them as fools for the remainder of their existence. So friends, remember, the disciples are human. Remember what they have just gone through, what they have endured. So the witnesses of an empty tomb, there's something very powerful about an eyewitness, is there not? And John, multiple times throughout his gospel, talks about the value and the validity of what? Eyewitnesses. An eyewitness is... Uh, can make sense of circumstances uh, as they drive along a scene of a, of a car accident. 911's called, the police come on the scene, and what do the police officers do? They gather the facts, and the weight of a true eyewitness helps the one who is not there determine what really happened, right? The eyewitness of that traffic light camera it bears witness against whether or not you really did run that red light. It makes sense of the he said, she said type of situations. The eyewitness account of a horrible act or crime or, God forbid, even a murder is called to the stand to what? Bear witness of what they saw to help determine the truth. Eyewitnesses proclaim truth and help us get to the truth. The beauty of truth is that it matters. Truth matters, right? Anybody that would have any type of sane head on their shoulders would say that truth absolutely matters. And the day that we live in, unfortunately, though, is that truth doesn't always matter. What seems to be black and white and right and wrong, clear defined truth as defined in Scripture in the world that we live in, is now redefined. So in many cases, truth doesn't matter or a version of truth doesn't matter. Today, we live in a society where valuing truth and its relevance on one's life seems to have fallen on hard times. So this morning, what we are going to attempt to do over the next couple of weeks is to establish the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm sure you all have heard the story nearly 30 years ago. A budding journalist and a staunch atheist begins his journey of investigating the claims of Scripture after his wife has become a follower of Christ. Lee Strobel, right? The case for Christ. 
The thought of that day was if the evidence adds up, and it does, then it is true. And if it is true, I must believe it. Because why wouldn't I believe something that truly is true? There's logic in that, right? 30 years later, truth has been redefined. Truth has become relative in our post-Christian and post-modern society. Truth is only viewed through the what eye of the beholder. And so the challenge that we have with the resurrection in our day, even as recent as 30 years ago, is that the resurrection of Jesus is difficult to establish relevance in the life of a believer who doesn't believe the truth of Scripture. But if we can get an individual by the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace to recognize and respond to Jesus as Savior and Lord and to understand that Jesus is unique because he has risen from the dead, the resurrection is a game changer. It is no longer in our day about whether it, the resurrection, actually happened or not. In in our day, it's not about a swoon theory. It's not about the hallucination theory or a conspiracy theory or the theft theory. All the different theories of old that you might have heard thrown around about how we can prove that Jesus did die and that he rose from the dead. Those arguments are seemingly irrelevant 30 years fast forwarded to our day. No doubt all of these have been debunked. Um, scientific minds have weighed in, as Dave Welch mentioned just a few weeks ago, and they're dismissed as shallow ways that the world has attempted to explain away this powerful and supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Eric, you kind of confused me. What are you actually saying then? I'm saying this. The resurrection for today's culture is all about relevance. So whether or not Jesus rose from the grave only matters if it provides some type of relevance or value to my life. Have you heard that before? Otherwise, the conclusion is this. Who cares? So Jesus lived, so he died, so you say he rose from the dead? What's the big deal? Who cares? So my goal over the next couple of weeks as we journey through chapter 20 and we consider the most impactful and powerful and significant day in the history of mankind, our goal will be this. By God's grace, we will attempt to build our case for why the resurrection matters and what relevance the resurrection has on my life today if it is true, and it is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here's the relevance of the resurrection. If the resurrection did not happen, friends, we are still in our sins. Christ could have died and shed his blood. But if the story ends there, we are still lost and we are still without hope because the resurrection matters that much. Paul says we are still in our sins if Christ has not been raised. So why does the resurrection matter? What is its relevance to my life and the world that I live in? It matters because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, myself, 
And you and the entire world, past, present, and future, are still in our sins, and that is an eternally big problem. Because if we are still in our sins, myself, you, the entire world, past, present, and future, then we have a very bleak and hopeless future awaiting for us, and it's called hell. It's called eternal punishment, eternal judgment in a real, tangible existence in a place called hell, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Friends, my goal this morning is to not bring a hellfire and damnation sermon. My goal is to wake us up to the reality that the resurrection is the most relevant and the most important concept in Scripture for us to wrap our hearts and our minds around. It matters eternally that we get the resurrection right. Because, friends, there is one absolute truth that no man can deny, and that is death. No matter what truth is to the eye of the beholder, they cannot explain away the existence and the reality of what? Death. Someday I will take my last breath and I will die. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verses 27 through 28, and just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, he's already done that, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Paul continues his commitment to the resurrection and attempts to use it as a warning to the philosophical elite of his day in the city of Athens. Remember, Acts chapter 17. Verses 30 and 31, he says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And of this, he has given assurance to all by what? Raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God the Father shooting out the eternal warning flare that judgment is coming. Christ is righteous. You have sinned. And I am holy. And that creates an eternal problem. Friends, death is real. Death is real. God ordained judgment by a righteous and risen judge, and that is real. And whether you believe the resurrection is real by evidence or whether you believe it is real by relevance, it doesn't ultimately really matter. What does matter is this, your eternal standing before a holy God who has loved you so deeply that he has not left you in your sin, but he has provided a way. Paul goes on to say in Romans 10, 9, and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that, the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God hath what? Raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, for Paul, the resurrection was that big of a deal. It was absolutely a game changer. The basis upon one's individual faith in Christ as Savior and Lord was and is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it sets true Christianity apart from all other world religions. Friends, remember this. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Buddha 
is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Krishna of Hinduism is dead. There is only one, count it, there is only one risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So God has chosen in his wisdom to allow the most significant event in history to happen at that time and to be recorded by the most unlikely means, eyewitness accounts. Sometimes do you ever question the ways of the Lord? Do you ever question that, you know what, Jesus, if you would have come in 2018, there's this thing called social media. There's this thing called viral sharing. There's this thing called Facebook Live to record what's going on. Somebody comes on the scene of the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene, Peter, and the beloved disciple, and all these other disciples who ate and talked with Jesus just go Facebook Live and everybody believes and it's great. That wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for Jesus to come at this appointed time and for this most important event in history be recorded by eyewitness accounts and for it to be passed on from generation to generation and to be recorded in the inspired and errant word of God and passed down even to us thousands of years later that all of us who will believe understand Jesus is Savior and Lord and that he has risen from the dead. John's gospel seems to be structured with the priority of witness accounts all the way through it. It starts with John the Baptist in chapter one, verses six through eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a what? A witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to do what? Bear witness about the light. Peter in his message to the Gentiles in Acts 10 verses 39 through 43 says, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So this morning, friends, as we look into John chapter number 20, we have the opportunity to read John's account of the resurrection through these eyewitnesses. We will see as we work our way through the beautiful portrait that is painted it will take us through the depths of despair as the disciples grapple with the aftermath of a horrific scene to a climax of hope as their sorrow is turned to joy and their fear and uncertainty is turned to saving faith. So friends, this morning we'll attempt to look at the first 10 verses, draw some simple observations of these eyewitness accounts and the impact and relevance of the resurrection on our lives even today. The first point we'll look at this morning is this, Mary's premature conclusion about Christ. Let's look at verses one and two 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And the other resurrection accounts in the synoptic gospels, which would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, The resurrection story includes several women coming to the tomb. We see it in Mark 16, verse number one. We have Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome. We see two women in Matthew 28, verse number one, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And according to Luke 24, verse number 10, we see there were more than three. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and the others. Sometimes we can get hung up on some of these details, but regardless of the actual number, the purpose for their coming was apparently to do what? Why were they coming? Matthew tells us in chapter 28, they were coming to see the empty tomb and to do what? Bring spices and anoint the body to complete this mourning and formal burial process. But it's interesting that in John's account, He focuses in on Mary Magdalene. She's mentioned this time in chapter 20 in our previous chapter, verse number, uh, chapter 19, verse number 25. As John often does though, Mary, he hones in on an individual and that individual then will serve as a model or representative of a type of person. And in this case, Mary will represent the other women present at the tomb, which we see in the other gospels. But before we get carried away, right, we don't want to be hasty in us understanding that the other other women are present here in John chapter number 20. Verse number two says this. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we, plural, right, do not know where they have laid him. So although John's account doesn't mention these other women that were present in the other Gospels, we do understand that John does account for other women, a plurality of women being here at the tomb to discover that the tombstone has been rolled away and that there is an empty tomb. So what's the big deal with Mary Magdalene and her coming to the tomb and finding it empty. I want to remind us that scripture not only is inspired, meaning breathed out by God, but it is also inerrant, meaning it is without error. So verse two, again, we see the plural. There's other women present. Matthew points out other details as far as the security of the tomb. Turn over to Matthew 27. Let's let's read that because I find it interesting, Matthew's account. Matthew 27 Verse number 66. Matthew 27, verse number 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people. 
He has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing it, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Right here we have in Matthew's account is the Pharisees, the religious elite understand what Christ was saying. Understand the impact of a risen savior could mean for this spread of Christianity. And they want to make sure at all stakes that they stifle out everything that's going on uh, or any chance that Christ could be uh, uh, misconstrued as actually rising from the dead. So what do they do? They seal the stone. They place armored guards right there at the tomb. And they make for certain that Christ isn't coming out of that tomb. But of course, God had other plans. So John understands these details. He understands the full account, but he seems to assume that this tombstone rolled away and Christ raising from the dead, that it was simply what it was, a miracle. John has, has made much about signs, miracles, and wonders. And so he does, although he doesn't give a lot of detail, he understands that this is still very, very relevant and very much a miracle. So it's clear in this passage here that Mary Magdalene was in a complete state of what? Shock. So what conclusions does Mary Magdalene make about this empty tomb? What does she make? At the side of an empty tomb, she ran to tell Peter and the beloved disciple what had happened. Her concern for the missing body of Jesus is not that of resurrection joy, but rather that of angered confusion. Her conclusion was this. They have removed the body of the Lord. But who in Mary's mind is they in verse number two? When she said they have taken the Lord, she had one group in mind. That would be who? The Romans, those who had crucified him. Those who had, had shamefully ridiculed and mocked and beat and ultimately murdered her Savior and Lord. So she was in a state of rage. She was in a state of confused anger as she could only imagine the nerve of these Roman soldiers and religious elite, potentially the Jews and the Pharisees even involved, to roll that stone away, to take away the body of, of her Savior. In clear violation of the Jewish burial integrity and Roman practice, she is beside herself. So what does she do? She runs back to the disciples. Let's look at verses three through nine. Verses three through nine, our second point is this, Peter and the beloved disciples' conclusion about the empty tomb. Verses three through nine, we have a series of what? The beloved disciple and, and Peter observing this empty tomb for the first time and in their state of anxiousness, receiving this, this very energized and emotional response from Mary. What do they do? They get up and they run right away to the tomb. The beloved disciple runs ahead of Peter and reaches the tomb first. I don't know if Peter's just slow or what really was going on there, but clearly this other disciple, this beloved disciple outran him. So I want to I pause right here and make some observations about this disciple whom Jesus loved, who has also been described as what? The beloved disciple. Who is he? Who's the beloved disciple? Many, many people believe it is John, the son of Zebedee, but 
Uh, John, in his account of Scripture, never actually does what? Never actually says that. Um, so we have essentially six accounts of this phrase, the beloved disciple or the disciple whom uh, the Savior loved. And typically in every single one of these instances where we have this description of the beloved disciple, it's in contrast to who? Peter. It's typically in contrast to actually Peter. And so Peter will have some outrageous response or he'll have some quick answered uh, definition of love or he'll, you know, just put his foot in his mouth and then the beloved disciple on Night and Shining Nightmare runs in with the, with the right response or, 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 or the obvious response. And so really in all cases, we see this contrast of this beloved disciple and, and Peter, this this, this contrast, again, of, of responses and life and uh, reflection of who truly Jesus is. So here we have, once again, the beloved disciple and, and Peter in stark contrast of each other. What does the beloved disciple do when he finds himself at the scene of an empty tomb with the stone rolled away? He stops and he does what? He observes. Peter finally catches up, out of breath, I don't know, maybe he was a little heavier. I don't know what the deal was. He just lagged behind. He shows up. He's out of breath. And what does he do? He just barges right into that empty tomb, right? Doesn't that sound like Peter? Doesn't it sound like something he would do? Others are stopping and observing and, and almost a, a point of, of sacred care about the setting. And Peter just barges right in. Let's read our text here and, and get the point of the text, verse number three. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, verse five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths laying there and did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. So in true, again, Peter-like fashion, he comes in, he takes inventory of the situation, surveys the scene and observes what is present in this tomb. What was Peter's conclusion? Essentially nothing. His conclusion was this. Yep, Mary was right. He's gone. What did Mary come and report? Not that Christ had risen, but that what? They had taken Jesus from the tomb. And so this is the assumptive conclusion that Peter is already operating upon. So when he comes to the tomb and observes that, yep, Christ isn't there, his assumption is that Mary was right. He's gone. Jesus has been taken. The disciple whom, the Jesus, whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple's conclusion, what was his conclusion? He saw and what? And believed. Now, verse number eight, this phrase, they saw and believed, seems to be a turn in the storyline, verse number nine is very much a challenging verse on the heels of verse number eight. What's verse number nine say? 
For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the question is, did the beloved disciple truly see and believe? Or did the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, simply see and believe the account that Mary Magdalene had come and given him? There's many different opinions on this point. We can come to conclusions based off of the whole of Scripture, based off of the whole of John's account. And I would favor that the beloved disciple truly did see and believe, as in believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. In our gospel, in John account here, this Greek word pastuo, to believe, when used absolutely with no other qualifiers or, or no other context, it's to be taken as what it truly means, genuine faith, right? We have in John chapter number five, verses 43 through 47, I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? John 6, 47 through 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. John 19, verses 33 through 36. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out what? Blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And later on in our passage, John 20, 29 through 31, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have not seen? Speaking to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We have recorded in Scripture that the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, was resting on, uh, on the chest of Jesus. No doubt that this beloved disciple seemed to have a, a better insight into the teachings and, and the ministry and the purposes of Jesus' existence. And so on the basis of that, we have John writing here in verse number 8 that this beloved disciple, he saw and believed. We see, again, a contrast that is consistent with the beloved disciple and Peter throughout John's account. We have a contrast between the beloved disciple's faith and the incomprehension and confusion of Peter. So, again, whether the disciple at this point had truly saving faith or not, we do have the reality in verse number 9 that this Let's read verse 9 one more time. Then the other disciple, excuse me, for as yet they, plural, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
And so here's the thing. I I don't want to get hung up in the conclusions of whether or not he did or did not. I believe he did. I think that verse number nine, in light of the whole of John's account, could indicate that this beloved disciple, although understood that Jesus did rise from the dead, didn't necessarily understand the entire implications of the resurrection on his life, right? Jesus has not appeared yet bodily. They have not ate and, and drank and, and, and ministered with Christ in his resurrected body. He has not given them the great commission, right? He has not said in verse 21 just yet, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what was the plural conclusion, whether they believed or didn't believe, the conclusion of an empty tomb at this point for these two disciples was that they did what? Verse number 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <laughs> so there's an, empty, there's an empty tomb. Jesus isn't there. Maybe they took him. Maybe he rose again. Maybe they saw and believed. Again, we, we don't know all the dynamics of what's really going on here. But regardless, what was their response? They went back home. Verse 21, it's coming. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it's coming. So I wonder today, what relevance does this empty tomb account based on these eyewitnesses of Mary Magdalene, of Peter and the beloved disciple? What relevance does it have on your life today? As you observe a stone rolled away, as you behold an empty tomb, as you see the grave clothes folded up in their place and concluding simply, I wonder... Are we just going back home? My prayer is we continue to journey through John chapter 20 and continue to make a case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why it matters then and why it matters still today. I wonder, are we just going to go home? My prayer is that we will see and believe. My prayer is that we will go into the tomb and believe that Jesus Christ did have a real, tangible, literal, bodily resurrection. And as a result, that matters. That we would believe that Jesus went to the cross. He shed his blood, making remission for my sin. That he was taken off that cross. He was buried in the tomb. And on the third day, he did rise from the dead. And in doing so, what did Christ do? He crushed the head of Satan and the stranglehold of sin on my life. And as such, we can be made right in the eyes of the Father because of this, the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verses number 55 through 58, cannot we boldly proclaim this reality? Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is why the resurrection matters. This is why Jesus raising from the dead matters, because it changes everything. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God.
We thank you that you have come on a mission to seek and to save that which was lost and that you accomplished that mission. You saw it through to the end. You did not quit. You did not waver. It was not incomplete, but rather it was efficient and sufficient for those whom you would call to yourself. So Father, we thank you this morning that we have the hope and the truth of Scripture that the resurrection changes everything. That no matter what we're going through, maybe we're struggling with the grip of sin. Maybe we've gone back to the slave box of, of our own lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But we've gone back to the chains of sin and we put those on and we, we find ourselves in well-worn paths. We find ourselves in times of complacency. We find ourselves in times of failure. We find ourselves right now in the time of guilt and shame because of failure. Father, we can look to the resurrection this morning and we can say there is victory. There is hope. Where there has been sorrow because of loss, you bring joy because we have the hope of gain for all of eternity. So Father, I pray that this morning that you would awaken our eyes, our hearts, our minds to the reality of what the resurrection of Jesus truly brings to our life as followers, as disciples of Christ. Although we will find hard times although there will be persecution, although there will be difficulty, Christ is risen. Although man may take everything from us, although they may even take our lives, there is hope that our life is not ended once and for all, but for all eternity, because Christ has risen, we also will rise again. And those that, whom we love that have known you as their loving Lord and personal Savior, they have gone on to be with you and there's hope that someday we will be with them as well in a real place called heaven because you have risen and gone to prepare a place for us. Father, we thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to now transition to our time of communion. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, Amber's going to pray, play an instrumental for us. And I pray that you would just take a time to quiet hearts in your minds and reflect on the truths of this song and consider your ways as we go to the Lord's table this morning.
Amen. Thank you, Amber. The Lord's Supper is what we call an ordinance, right? At Liberty Hills Bible Church, we have two ordinances that we observe and practice, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper. An ordinance is simply what? A, a, a religious uh, ritual, something that we do often to remind us of what Christ has done. And we have biblical precedents for it, right? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter number 11, verse number 26, it says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He goes on and says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, Communion, no doubt, is many times in church context is a a, a sombering time, right? But it's also a time of simply remembering what truly Jesus has done. That he has shed his blood, and as a result, there's remission of sins. That he has risen from the dead, and as a result, what? We have hope, and so no doubt it can be a joyous and celebratory exercise as well. But as we uh, ask the men to come and prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, I ask that we would examine ourselves in our standing before the body. We, as Liberty Hills Bible Church, practice what? Covenant membership. And as covenant members, we have multiple commitments to each other and fellowship and encouragement and and brotherly kindness and one one anothering and biblical family roles as husbands and fathers and wives and mothers as children. And that covenant, it's a beautiful time for us to remember again, not only our commitment to the Lord, but our commitment to what? The body, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. So I wonder this morning before you take the bread and before you take the fruit of the vine, um, have you considered this morning not only your standing before the Lord, but your standing in the body of Christ as a covenant member of Liberty Hills Bible Church? Are we being a body fitly joined together? Are we exercising our gifts for the purpose of building this body up in love? Are we engaged in one anothering? Are we engaged in each other's life? Are we exercising Acts chapter 2 type of activity where they had all things in common and they were together day by day? I wonder, is there business that we need to do before the Lord and a commitment that we need to renew with our relationship with the Lord and this body? Friends, there are implications on Christ's death. We're not to just be sideline observers in this thing we call the Christian life, but rather Christ is going to send his great commission in a few more verses. And he is going to call us to real tangible service to our Lord Jesus Christ in and outside the body of Christ. And so again, we will practice this morning open communion. We invite everybody who names Jesus Christ as our Lord and personal Savior, Christ alone, by grace alone, to Uh, Join with us in the observance of the Lord's Supper. If even right now, uh, too often we don't see this, but I would encourage you, even right now, if maybe within your family unit or another brother or sister, if there's a word you need to share, if there's a time of confession that needs to be had, I want to encourage you to take that urging of the Lord and do that as we truly observe the Lord's 
death until he comes as we partake of the Lord's table this morning. says in 
chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse number 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. Amen. As we close, let's remember again 1 Corinthians 15 that we read. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What should our response be to the Lord's table, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning? Let us go forward as disciples, as followers of Christ to go and make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time. We pray that you would have your will and your way in our life, that there's somebody here who needs to do business with you, who is not recognizing and responding to the truth and the power of the resurrection as they ought. I pray that your spirit would continue to stir up in them a renewed relationship for you. I pray even as we discuss and we consider in greater detail this text this morning, I pray that you would have your will in your way. You would do a work in Jesus' name. Amen.